but this evening we want to give an overview of the sermon and kind of an introduction to the sermon. Before a person can understand specifics of really a lot of different things and specific elements concerning the Sermon on the Mount, we must also have an understanding of the whole. Think about it this way. Before a person can really understand the details of a fabulous painting, they must stand back and look and view the entirety of the painting itself. And if you ever notice someone that is really an artist and can evaluate such things, that's what they do. They stand back and notice the general aspect of it, and then they will like examine the specific brush strokes. The same way as for a symphony. Before you can really appreciate any one member that's playing in that symphony, you have to listen to the entirety of the symphony. Because the entirety of the symphony and all the instruments blending together is what really makes the symphony, not a single member. And then once you hear the entirety of it, then you can appreciate the details. The same way with the Sermon on the Mount. A general overview is necessary uh, before specific points can be understood. To fail to see the overall, the, the overall picture that's painted by our Lord in the Sermon on the Mount is to miss the very message of the sermon. Therefore, we will again look at the general points concerning the Sermon on the Mount and some different things that will help us to understand it. The first thing that we want to consider this evening is the general outline of the sermon. Now, I have a more detailed outline of it, but we're going to look at the general outline, the, the, um, uh, the five points that I believe that make up this sermon. And the first major point is the disciples' character and function. And that's chapter 5, verses 3 through 16. Now in this, we have the first part of it is the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes is really a description of the character of the disciples. It shows that character or that function that the disciple has with the Lord. And we'll look at that in more detail. Now next week I plan to read the Sermon on the Mount. And that's part of the general overview. But then we're going to look at an introduction to the Beatitudes. And then we're going to look at each of the Beatitudes. But the Beatitudes show the general character of the disciple. Then you have the, the disciple is proven by the reaction to the world. If you remember, you get to the end of the Beatitudes and... Jesus said, blessed are they that are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And because he began with the kingdom of heaven and ended with the kingdom of heaven, then we believe that the Beatitudes are limited to that particular section. But then he spent a couple of verses on persecution. If someone lives righteously, are they going to be persecuted by those within the world? Well, of course they will. We have a number of different promises within the scriptures that clearly teach such. And so he said, blessed are ye if men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. 
Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Well, then you get to the end of this section, and you have the salt of the earth and the light of the world. If a Christian is living according to, or a disciple is living according to the Beatitudes, he will be persecuted by the world, but at the same time, he will have an influence on the world. The picture of salt and the picture of light are both about influence. And so they will influence the world around about them. And so their character and their function is clearly seen in that first section. The second section of the Sermon on the Mount is the disciples' relationship to the law. Now that's the major part of the fifth chapter. Now the entirety of Matthew chapters 5 through 7, and which includes the Sermon on the Mount, is 111 verses. Well, you take two verses that are the prologue and two verses that are the, the ending comment, the, the post-log or the post-comments uh, of the sermon, then that means the sermon is 107 verses long. Well, if you look at this particular part, we're talking about 30 verses. That's about a third of the Sermon on the Mount. And he spent that time in talking about that quality that we ought to have that's different than that of the Pharisees and the scribes earlier, as earlier discussed. So it is then that relationship to the law. And it has five different sections. And these five different sections begin with something to the effect of, ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, or hath been said by them of old time. Something to that effect. And then he sometimes he said uh, some other comments about it, but he started each of these sections with that. But before he ever got to that part of it, he said, unless your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you can have no part in the kingdom of God or no case in the kingdom of God. And so it is the case that Jesus did not come to destroy the law, but he came rather to fulfill it. And our righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, that doesn't mean that we have to have more righteousness but it's rather a fact to the type of righteousness that we have. In other words, we have to have a true righteousness rather than a false pseudo-righteousness like the Pharisees had. But then he talked about the disciples' relationship to murder. But you remember the application was, thou shalt not hate is basically the idea. Then he talked about adultery. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. But Jesus then made the application that it's really about lusts. Well, then he said concerning oaths, ye have heard that it hath been said by them of old time that uh, thou shalt fulfill thy oaths or, or something to that effect. And he said, but I say unto you, don't swear at all. In other words, don't make oaths. And let your yeas be yeas, and your nays be nay. And then about retaliation. Ye have heard that it hath been said by them of old time. Uh, uh, the uh, uh, Verse 38. 
just a minute. If it all, all else fails, your memory fails, look at the scriptures. He said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for the tooth. That's what he said. Okay. So, but it's about retaliation. And we are not to retaliate. And the final thing he said, then this is verses 43 to 48, is ye have heard that hath been said, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But he said, but I say unto you, love your enemies. He actually expanded upon it. They said enemy, but Jesus said enemies. You shall love your enemies. And so it's clearly a relationship to the law. Now, I've always found it interesting when you read commentaries and especially denominational commentaries, and I'm not saying that all denominational commentaries are wrong to use. I certainly don't believe that. However, we need to be careful. We need to be careful concerning commentaries on the book of Romans, the book of Galatians, and the Sermon on the Mount concerning the law. Jesus is not talking about law. He clearly taught law. But you know, the denominational commentaries will oftentimes make application that we're no longer under law. Well, we're no longer under the law, and we'll point that out more later on. Okay, the sixth chapter is the disciples' lives in God's presence. Well, the disciples' life in God's presence shows our dependence upon Him. And this particular chapter is divided into three parts. We are dependent upon Him in ways of service. And that's the verses 1 through 4. In other words, you see, let not your, or do not your alms before men to be seen of them. Otherwise, ye have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. And I've pointed out in different places and different classes that that this is really talking about righteousness. Don't do your righteous deeds before men to be seen of them. That's not, the, that's not our goal is to be seen of men. Our goal is to be seen of God. And that's what the Lord pointed out. Then the second two parts of this particular section concerns prayer and also concerns fasting. And it really deals with the Christian's life is divided into two basic parts. You have service, that's verses 1 through 4 with almsgiving, and you have worship. And that begins with verse number 5 and goes all the way down to verse number 18. And that would include then both prayer and fasting. And so when we worship God, it has to be not to be seen of man, men, but to be seen of God. The last part of chapter 6 concerns the, the daily lives of the disciples. And that's verses 19 to 34. Remember, in this particular section, he said, don't worry about your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink or what you shall put on. And so we're not to worry about those things. We're not to have anxiety about those things because God will provide them for us if we seek first the kingdom of God. And so in that daily lives of brethren, in our daily lives, let's not be too carried away with being worried about those kinds of things. The next part of it is the disciples' view of judgment. And that's chapter 7, verses 1 through, through 23. And it's pretty clear that that's what he's 
talking about because he begins the chapter by saying, Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you shall be judged. And I'm always amazed at people that misuse that particular passage. It is clear that he's not talking about what most people really view, but rather he, he and it is always interesting that it's all right to judge a person if they're judging, but don't you judge, you know? Well, you know, if we make a judgment about a person judging, we're, we, are, we are ourselves judging. So we have to be really careful to make, to make that application in the way, that way. But it's that view of judgment. So what do we do? Well, look at verse 13. Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And few there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way that leadeth unto life. Or I messed up that quote. But anyway, few there be that find in. So we have to enter that narrow gate. That's our view of judgment. And we walk through life thinking about what God has provided for us and thinking about judgment to come. And then look at verse 21, because I believe that illustrates this particular point as well. He said, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Very clearly, it is in view of the judgment. And the final few verses of the sermon is really the conclusion. And it's the needed application or the, the need of making that proper application. And many of you have heard me talk about this with the kids with, in the Sunshiners. And I point out that it's really not about building houses and the foundation that they are, they, a wise man builds a foundation and a foolish man, he builds a poor foundation. That's not what it's about. It's really about hearing the word of God and doing it or not doing it. I mean, look at the verses again and examine those verses because it's very clearly that the wise disciple hears and applies the sermon but a foolish disciple hears the sermon, but does not apply them. Now with that in, that in mind, I want to look at three important perspectives portrayed in the, the Sermon on the Mount. And the first is something that I've already alluded to, and that is the disciples' view of the law. Now, we are not under the law of Moses. And I think all of us that are here this evening know that we're not under the law of Moses. Ephesians 2, verse 15, Colossians 2, verse 14, Romans 7, verse 4. And, and in fact, the, the, a major part of the book of Hebrews is to declare that we're not under the old law. In chapter 7 of Hebrews, in verse number 12, Jesus, or there, the Hebrews writer declared, that uh, the, for the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. Not a, not a change in the law, but a change of the law. You see, under the Old Testament law, Jesus could not serve as the high priest. He couldn't even serve as a regular priest, let alone the high priest. He couldn't even serve as the Levites serve. In other words, aids to the high priest or aids to the priestly 
order. He could not serve in that way because he was not of the tribe of Levi. Brother, he was of the tribe of Judah. So there had to be a change of the law. However, we are still under law. And there are a number of passages that clearly show that. The one that I oftentimes will use is Romans 8 in verse number 2, which says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus had made me free from the law of sin and death. Now, the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus is the New Testament law. We're under law. We're just not under the law of Moses. Now, notice also, though, and let's get back to the Sermon on the Mount, because that's obviously the point, is within the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus portrayed a proper understanding of the law. Look over with me to Matthew chapter 5, and look at verses 17 and 18. There Jesus said, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, Till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Though we're not under the Old Testament law, we understand that there are many things that we can learn from the Old Testament law. So we have to be careful with, with uh, saying that the Old Testament law has no part within us. But I've heard people say, in fact, I've heard a number of people say, and in fact, one person, or actually a couple, they were attending where I was preaching, and I was talking about Old Testament things, and they said, we're New Testament Christians. We're not under the law, so we don't need to be studying the law. Well, you know, it was written for our admonition and for our learning. And ultimately, those folks left because I, was, I continued to study the Old Testament law. And so it, is, we need, so it is that we need to consider the law and understand what the law and how it's fulfilled within the New Testament. But at the same time, notice how Jesus then expounded upon a better understanding of the law. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not forswear, thou shalt not, or an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth, and thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But then in chapter 7 and verse 21, he brought it home and he said, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. You see, we're not under the Old Testament law. And the Jews and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the various sects of the Jewish religion in the first century, they had a grave misunderstanding of the law. And Jesus straightened out some of those misunderstandings. But the fact is, we're still under law. We're just not under the law. Of Moses. Another important perspective that's portrayed in the Sermon on the Mount is the disciples' view of eternal, uh, God's eternal presence. And I realize that that this is this is a major difference between true discipleship and the view of the world. Now, the view of the world they think about. God's all-seeing eye. 
that he sees everything and that they cannot escape anything. Well, you know, we look at it and we understand that God sees everything. He's omnipotent and he's omnipresent and he's also omniscient, which all, all of those indicates that he knows everything. There's nothing that goes on that he does not see and that he does not know. He knows everything. Well, to the world, that's kind of upsetting to a lot of folks. But the fact is, he does. And that's why we have to be careful. Jesus exhorted us. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and, and glorify your Father which is in heaven. You see, that exhortation, we let our light shine all the time or we try to let our light shine all the time because if we're not letting our light shine there's more than just men that are seeing that light not shining you see god's seeing that light not shining also and then what about matthew 6 and verse 33 but seek ye first the kingdom of god and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you you see when we understand God's eternal presence and what God's provided for us, we then come to the conclusion that we must seek first the kingdom of God. If we don't put that kingdom first within our lives, the glories of heaven will not be ours. We have to seek it first. But you know, there's another side of God's eternal presence that we have to consider. Oh, yeah, we can look at it from the standpoint of God's eternal and omnipotent eye that he sees everything. But, you know, there's one other aspect that gives me a lot of comfort. Because if God sees all, ask and it shall be given you. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. You see what I'm saying? Because God knows our needs. Then if we'll ask, seek, and knock, He'll know our request and He will fulfill our request. The last thing is the disciples' view of... last thing as far as this point is concerned. The disciples' view of the fear of God. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 19... Jesus said, Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. You see, the world views God like a big bear. And in fact, one guy that I read, he was a 17th century uh, preacher or minister for a denomination, and he says... God is like holding a spider on a web above the fire and swinging it to see how close he can come. And he said, we have to fear God in that sense, like we fear a bear or something. Well, that's not the fear that God wants us to have. Yeah, can God, can we understand that the terror of the Lord? Yeah, when you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10, a passage that we often refer to, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. But notice the very next verse. 
Knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Yeah, we need to be afraid of God in a way. But the, that's really not what Jesus taught. No, we need to have a great reverential fear. We need to reverence him above everything else. You see, to make jokes about God is not showing fear, the fear of God. But Jesus taught us to reverence him in every way. And so we then look at his word and we follow it in every way. In Matthew 6 and verse 1, he says, Take heed that you do not your alms before men to be seen of them. Otherwise, you have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. The reason why we do those alms is because we want to be seen of God. And we want to show our respect toward him. Later on in chapter 7 and verse 23, Jesus said, And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. You know, judgment day is going to be a terrifying day for a lot of folks because they based upon their salvation, their own personal knowledge, and their own uh, desires, and they think that they're going to be saved. It's going to be a surprise that day. No, we need to base it upon the fear of God. And we fear Him, so therefore we want to do His will. The final thing that we want to consider this evening is some principles that will help us to understand. Now I'm not going to go through all the principles, and actually there are numerous principles that we could consider hermeneutical principles, but I want to point out a few things that will help us to understand the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is not a list of mechanical rules. That's the first thing. This is the very thing that the Jews of the first century tried to do with the Old Testament law. They tried to make it in, into a list of, of mechanical rules. And Jesus corrected that in the latter part of the fifth chapter. It's not about not murdering. It's really about not hating your brother. It's not about not committing adultery. It's really about living according to God's law and marriage and divorce and not allowing yourself to fall into lust of the eyes. Same thing is true with any one of those things that Jesus talked about all the way through there. You see, when we look at those things and we really consider what he was dealing with, in every one of them, it's a heart matter. And it's a matter of the heart. It involves, that matter of the heart involves our service to God. It involves our worship. It involves our daily living. An example of that is Matthew chapter 5 and verse 40. <laughs> he said, And if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. Is this some mechanical rule to follow, some mechanical law that must be followed? No. You see, it's actually a reflection of the righteous, kind, and merciful attitude or spirit of a true disciple. You see, all the way through the Sermon of the Mount, it's not a listing of rules. It's principles that we should apply to our heart. It's not mechanical. It's from the heart. 
Another principle that we have to consider is that every admonition must be understood in the context of the sermon and in the context of the New Testament. Now, the kids will, they'll know exactly where I'm going with this, and sometimes one of them will pop up and they'll, they'll make mention of this, but this is something that I learned when I first became a Christian, and I think it's a principle that we must always keep in mind. A text out of context is a pretext to error. You've got to keep texts back in their context, and that's what this point really is. Now, with that in mind, consider Matthew chapter 5 and verse 29. Jesus said, If thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. Now, that's also recorded or similar Statement is recorded over in Mark, the ninth chapter. Now, does Jesus mean that we ought to literally pluck out our eyes? Well, if you pluck out one eye, is that going to make you stop lusting? And can you lust without eyes? And in fact, can you close your eyes without using your eyes and lust? You see, it's not about literally plucking out your eyes. It's about bringing into subjection your vision, your hearing, all the senses of your body, every single one, whether it be the hand or whether it be the foot. Now, in this context, he talked about the hand, but over in Mark, the ninth chapter, he talked about the foot. And whatever part of the body we're talking about, it's not going to make a difference whether you cut off your leg or whether you cut off your arm or whether you pluck out your eyes. That's not what this is about. It's about bringing your body into subjection to the will of Christ. That's what this is about. And that's really corresponds then with Romans chapter 6. Well, then another principle that we ought to, well, one more statement about that, and that is the thought of temporal gratification or physical gratification must be sacrificed for the higher good of the eternal soul. Now think about that for a second. Physical Gratification that's temporal must be sacrificed for the eternal good of the soul. One other principle to consider, if an injunction seems to be impossible, then the interpretation must be wrong. You know, this, this means, well, there's other examples of this particular thing, but... Jesus taught these same principles all the way through his life. He taught the principles that he taught within the Sermon on the Mount, and he lived by them. One of the things that we ought to understand is that, yes, Jesus is the Son of God, and he was perfect in every way, but he was tempted at all points like we are, yet without sin. 
And so every temptation that we go through, he also went through it. But he did so to conquer over sin. He stands as our example. And he stands as our forerunner. And if we will follow in his path, we can also conquer over the sins that, that so easily beset us. Well, Jesus taught these things and lived by them. So it is possible to do such. The apostles taught these things and they lived by them. And so it must be possible for us to live by them as well. And I'm always amazed at the books of, of Peter and also the book of John and the number of allusions that allude back to the Sermon on the Mount, especially in the book of Peter or the books of Peter. And oftentimes the allusions that are made, but these are not things that are impossible. That's the whole point. They're not things that are impossible. There are things that we can adapt to our lives and live according to those things. And so Christians must do the same. We must be willing to apply the principles found within this passage. And we cannot, and none of them are above uh, what is humanly possible. The Sermon on the Mount should be and ought to be considered seriously and soberly. Now that could be said of any passage of Scripture. We must cyber, um, seriously and soberly consider all those things. But just as we might stand in awe of a great symphony and all the different parts of it, and we think, wow, I just can't believe the music that comes from this great symphony. Or just as we might stand in awe of a beautiful painting, we ought to stand in awe of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is something that we ought to stand in awe of the Lord's marvelous words of wisdom. However, let us not also forget that we've got to be wise builders, not foolish builders. And we have to apply the principles that we learn within this great sermon. Let us stand in awe, but let us have the courage to apply. This evening, we do want to offer the invitation. There may be someone here that would like to respond to it. And if you'd like to respond to the invitation, this is the opportunity that you have. Let us do so as we stand and sing.